So last week it felt like we were saying goodbye to an old friend of reading through the Gospel of John this ordinary time. If you don't know what I mean by ordinary time, it's one of the ways that we organize the church calendar. And so in this long ordinary time that we just finished, we've been reading together the Gospel of John. And we've got two more weeks uh, left in ordinary time. And then we have the Feast of Christ the King. And then we begin Advent. And so in these last two weeks of ordinary time, I thought we might linger a bit in John using two of his kind of main ways of presenting Jesus. The first are these seven I am statements. And we're gonna look at these this morning and, and see how they are to us what we need in our own formation into Christ's likeness. And then next week, our final week in John, we'll look at the seven signs and, uh, and think about this more from the point of view of how do we explain faith in our culture today and what these seven signs were meant to do. Well, I don't expect you to remember, it's been months ago that we looked at John 6, but you may remember that in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, he leaves and goes across to uh, the other side of the lake and big crowds of people follow him. And in the conversation that ensues, Jesus says to them, you've come following me looking for bread, but you really don't believe me. Now just, can you hold those words in your mind? For, like, even try to picture those words, but you really don't believe me. I think for at least the ones of us in this room who grew up in the evangelical church would probably be most of us, wouldn't you immediately say, there's a two-letter word missing from that statement. You don't really believe me. What's the two-letter word that would be missing? Yeah, wouldn't you expect Jesus to say, you don't really believe in me? But it's not what he's saying. He's saying what he means. You actually don't believe me. You don't get what I'm up to. You don't really believe what I say. He's not talking about the kind of faith that we've so lifted up, and I don't mean entirely wrongly, but you know, lifted up in the evangelical church of, you know, do you believe in Jesus, which really is code for, do you believe he died for you? And do you believe his death covers your sins? And can you at least give some little, you know, some little brief outline of what that might mean? And if you can, you're in, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the deal. But Jesus is saying something that really transcends that. It includes it, but it transcends it. And what we read here in these sayings of Jesus in John represent that John had come to know Jesus and his words and Jesus's ideas as accurate representations of reality. Now, we could take it another way. We could take it that Tom just read to us um, seven really cool sayings of Jesus. I mean, they're cool, and they're maybe even a bit heartwarming or something in a religious sense, but are they accurate representations of reality? Do they actually describe something that's true such that we, we could learn to trust them as a basis for life and to rely on them as something that's good and true? Because here's the deal, my, my beloveds, and sorry to ask you to think for a minute on a Sunday morning, but this is just the real deal. We are at the mercy of our ideas. And it's never more true than our ideas about God. 
they hold us in an unconscious, at least subconscious grip for good or bad. We are literally at the mercy of the ideas that we hold to be true in our lives. And this is why it is so important to let these sayings of Jesus begin to shape what, sense, what we sense to actually be true about our actual lives. And I think part of the reason John is so stunned by these ideas of Jesus is that they seem to John and Jesus' other hearers to be like a word from another reality. And when the people said of Jesus, we've never heard anyone teach with such power or authority, I think they meant something like this, that when Jesus teaches, it doesn't seem exterior to us the way maybe formal logic might work. And I'm all good with formal logic. But formal logic, especially if it gets detailed and complex, seems to like reside in whoever the teacher might be, you know, somebody standing in a classroom, and it seems exterior to you. But when Jesus teaches, it seems deeply interior. It, when Jesus teaches, something happens inside of me, and I never feel like Jesus is trying to make things so explicit and his conclusion so clear that he's like jamming them down my throat. It seems to me I can hear John saying that when I've heard Jesus, it seems like he's aiming at real inward change of my view and heart that enables me to come to conclusions that feel more like spiritual eureka. It feels like it's something that comes out of me, that I, I get something, that he draws something out of me. So think of the story in John's Gospel of the woman at the well. She goes into town and says what? Come see the man who revealed everything to me. So Jesus just has this conversation with her. It's not on cosmology. It's not on eschatology. It's on noology. He just has this conversation with her. But the way she experiences it in her deepest internal being is that she had just come to understand something that was true and trustworthy and reliable. And so this gave Jesus' words a character all of their own that surpassed the philosophers. And again, I don't know that we've ever made this explicit, but I just want you to know, this is the, like, this is the Jesus freak in me wanting to contend for my Jesus. You know, Aristotle and Plato come about three or 400 years before Jesus. And John and all his buddies would have known, everybody knew those philosophers. You don't have to have a degree in philosophy from Cambridge or Oxford to know Aristotle and Plato. Everybody knew them. Everybody had some idea about what they were saying. But when Jesus taught, it surpassed it. And when Jesus talked about human community, it sounded nothing like when the mayor talked. And when Jesus talked about human economics and, and how one can come to trust and rely on God for their you know, provision, it didn't sound like the people who taught at Jerusalem you in economics. Jesus' teachings had a whole different quality to them that surpassed even the religious leaders of his day. Not least because of the character from whom these words came, the one who's actually speaking the words. And so what John wants us to have this morning in these seven sayings that he records for us from Jesus is to have a true window into Jesus and how Jesus is the fullness of God's power for us and how that revelation 
is the basis of our spiritual formation because I wish I had seven fingers because these revelations of Jesus match human need. And so these aren't just nice little sayings as we'll see here in just a moment. These actually match human need and they are for us that which nourishes us towards Christ's likeness. So these statements reveal a beautiful and loving connection between our needs and you know how I pray for you at the end of every service? From, uh, you know, I borrowed these words from, uh, from the Old Testament. His face be turned towards you. You know what you just heard this morning? Seven ways that God's face is turned towards you. And how these seven ways match what it is that humankind needs and thrives on from God. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That is to say, Jesus is saying, I am to you what bread is to human nutrition. And that is, especially in this day, your basic human staple. Now, had you know, Jesus been speaking in Asia or something, he may have said, I am the rice of life. But he is simply saying, when it comes to your really deepest human spiritual self, I am the core staple of that life for your deepest needs are not physical. As important as they all are, you know, the basic physical human needs. Your most fundamental needs, Jesus is saying, are not physical, but can only be met in me who is the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now again, hear the quality of Jesus' words here. He doesn't say, I have light. See, that's what a philosopher says. I have light. Or a teacher might say, I have light. Or, or a teacher like me might point to light. I've, here, I've studied. Let me point to the light I've discovered. That's all cool. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And anybody who walks, walks with me will never walk in darkness again. And again, we have a hard time, you know, grappling with this unless you're one of those people who likes to go out to the desert where it's pitch black and look at the stars or something because we don't we don't know anymore what real darkness is I mean every room in our house even at night has little you know red or green little lights from electronics you know or whatever we don't know what real darkness is anymore but if you lived in Jesus' day when it got dark it was dark and one of these made a really big difference and that's how they lit their life. And you know, maybe you'd see somebody walking late at night down a dark hallway or alleyway with a torch, but that's how they lit their lives. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying something like, I am that which orients life against this essential darkness. And that's the whole business of moths being drawn to the flame and, and all that kind of stuff. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And that word saved there translates this really magnificent word in the Greek New Testament, sozo. Sozo is very close to the Hebrew concepts involved in shalom. 
Because to be saved here doesn't mean merely to go to heaven when we die, but it means to be rescued from our present life, our present way of being, to be delivered, to be kept safe and sound from the danger of destruction. And this is more deep and profound than I could ever say in a brief sermon, but it at least means this. You never, ever again have to do wrong to make yourself safe and secure. You never again have to lie, cheat, manipulate, posture. You never have to do it again. You're safe. You're rescued. It's all good. You're secure. Jesus is the gate into the sheepfold. And you know the mental picture here is, you know, picture a pile of rocks, you know, making this sheepfold and there's an opening and the shepherd asleep or at watch in that gate and keeping all manner of enemies from you. You're safe in that sheep pen. This is the image here. But again, this isn't just beautiful words. John wants us to hear this is a word from another reality. And if you'll let it, this other reality can transform the normal human assumptions that if I don't lie, if I don't manipulate, if I don't cheat, if I don't steal, if I don't power up on people, how can I be safe? How can I control the people and things around me? How can I get the promotion that I need? And and what these word pictures are meant to say to us is that there is a word from another reality. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And again, this is meant to say to us something enormously profound, that there is actually someone you can trust and follow. And you no longer have to live in the grip of the tyranny of your wants, for instance. That there is someone you can actually trust and follow. There actually is someone you can place your confidence in that their representations of reality are actually true. That there is a way that things are that Jesus is introducing us to here. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And again, the big message here to humanity is you no longer have to fear humanity's biggest enemy. And you no longer have to obey the rationale that was based in that fear. Well, why'd you do that? He scared me to death. That then becomes a rationale for anything, right? So enough fear, enough insecurity then becomes a rationale for anything. And, and, and so part of what Jesus' breaking the power of death over us means is that even the biggest fears of life no longer have to be the controlling factors of our life. Because as I taught you when we went through this passage six or eight weeks ago, nothing like death, look, I need your full and undivided attention here, 15 seconds. Nothing like you associate with death is ever gonna happen to you. You are not going to die. You are going to be translated because you, from, in the physical sense, you're gonna be translated into what you already are physically and that is a never ceasing being with an amazing future in God's new heavens and new earth. So while your body will quote die, you will be re-embodied 
with a glorious body similar to Jesus's and you will rule and reign with God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not my word. That's God's word. That's Revelation 22, 5. That's here, Jesus. This, this is what is real. And Jesus is inviting us into this kind of reality. And then he says, finally, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this, of course, begins to answer the deep um, but often suspicious or cynical questions of today. Is there a way to God where there is actually trustworthy truth about God, where one could find a genuine life in God? And again, for those of us who come out of you know, really conservative evangelical backgrounds, which again, I'm not putting down, but you know, this is one of those things where we would have wanted to prove Jesus' exclusiveness, right? He's not, remember, he's not a way, a truth, a life. He is the, you know, the way, the truth, the life. And, and so this whole passage has mostly been used in that kind of apologetic way. Well, that's become more difficult in the face of pluralism and relativism and tolerating things. And it brings up this whole notion of, well, how do we understand this? And I just wanna give you this one little bit of, of theology in this sermon because I think it's very important to the human conversation that's happening right now. Jesus, of course, is exclusive, meaning he is the cosmic one-off. There is nobody like Jesus, nobody. And you should never fear to test that. You should test it. Seriously, test him against the greatest religious leaders humankind's ever known. And if he doesn't stand up to that scrutiny, then follow someone else. Test it, and you'll find that he more than stands up to the scrutiny, and in that sense, he is exclusive. But that exclusiveness then makes people today think, well, gosh, what about my Buddhist neighbor? She's the greatest human being I've ever known, but she really doesn't have Christian beliefs, and are you trying to tell me she's gonna go to hell? And it just raises all these questions. So there's three ways historically of looking at this. One is exclusivism that says, unless you've you know, said the sinner's prayer, you're not going to heaven when you die. So that then excludes, you know, of course, billions of people who have never even heard the word of Jesus. So they're all going to hell because they didn't say the prayer. That's exclusivism. Some people, some Christians, very thoughtful, devout Christians, have responded by trying to grapple with a kind of universalism that says somehow, I don't know how it's gonna happen, but somehow God's gonna work it out that everybody's in. And then there's a middle position, which I prefer and I would suggest to you, that's not exclusivism, it's not universalism, it's, known, it's what's known as inclusivism. And it simply says this, Jesus is the great cosmic one-off and no one touches him. And everybody who finds himself in heaven will be there because of Jesus, whether they understood it or not. Are you feeling me here? Everybody who finds himself in heaven will be there because of Jesus, whether they understood that in the way we think of understanding it or not. Because billions of people have lived who never even heard of him, never heard of the Bible, never heard of any of this. And so if we can take on that, that works really well instead of thinking, well, my only other option is a shrug of indifference. So that's, look at me, that's the great body language of most people today concerning spirituality. Whatever. I don't know. How can anyone know? 
And there's a, there's a way of knowing these things. So this is a good way for you to hang on to something that's true to the revelation of scripture that, but doesn't put you in the position of damning most human beings who have ever lived to hell. That's, you know, that, that takes aside that um, kind of red herring that people want to, to deal with today. And then finally, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, abide in me. And what Jesus is showing us here is the possibility of an organic unity with him where we actually come to share in his life. So this isn't simply like so many spiritualities of today, a deeper experience of myself. Did you catch that? So much of religious spirituality today, what it really is, is well, I just, I wanna have this sort of deeper experience of myself. Well, again, that's good as far as it goes, but that's not what's being advocated here. What's being advocated here is an ever deepening relationship with the living Christ where we're learning to live our lives as Jesus would live it if he were in our place. That is to say, we're beginning to take in and interiorize Christ's love and his being and to embody it. And this is the key distinctive of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is never generic. It's not even eclectic in that sense. Christian spirituality is very specific and very particular to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that we're trying to abide, not a concept, not an idea, not a proposition. We are being invited to abide in a person. Well, this to me is all important because, again, I don't think we often think this, but it's actually understanding and insight that generates belief. So if, if you could hear that this morning, those words that Tom read, I am the light of the world, and you gain some understanding about that, that can foment and enlarge belief. And every parent knows, everybody who's been a parent or even a supervisor at work knows this, that it's in vain that we try to change people's heart or character by moving them to do things that they can't understand. It just never works. What begins to change human behavior and human thought is they get a little glimpse of something, the gate, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the bread of life. We get little insights and they begin to change our interior life and that little aha, eureka moment of understanding is much of what begins to change us. So I love the way my friend Dallas Willard put this. He said, many well-meaning people cannot succeed even in being kind because they're too rushed to get things done. Haste has underneath it a worry, fear, and anger as its close associates. So think about that versus the IMs we just read. And it's a deadly enemy of kindness and hence of love. If this is our problem, we may be greatly helped by a day's retreat into solitude and silence where we will discover that the world survives even though we are inactive. There we might prayerfully meditate to see clearly the damage done by our unkindness and honestly compare it to what, if anything, is really gained by our hurry. We will thereby come to understand that for the most part our hurry is really based upon pride, self-importance, fear, and lack of faith and rarely upon the production of anything of true value for anyone. But living under the revelation of these I am's frees and empowers us to love as God loves us. 
But outside the safety and sufficiency of the God these statements reveal, we're normally too frightened and angry to really love others. And so we arrange all of our dreary substitutes. Think of all the dreary substitutes of humankind for what could be a real love rooted in the safety of these sayings. Now we're gonna talk more about this next week, but John said at the beginning of the end of his book, he said, I wrote this that you might believe. And we read this this morning, that you might come to place your confidence in Jesus. That these seven representations are actually true and trustworthy. And that you can come to rely on him. So he has a little, a little moment of quiet now. I wanna invite you to maybe get out your reading and put it in your lap. And just let your eyes fall upon those seven sentences. And maybe the Lord is speaking to you through one of them this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit is highlighting one of them for you. Take a moment and let your eyes fall on them and see if you can find some confidence, some trust, some reliance on this one who brought to us a word from another reality.